In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Ishwar Puri. Dr. Ishwar Puri is the Dean of Engineering at McMaster University in Hamilton in Canada. And at McMaster, he leads The Pivot, a project that's transforming engineering education by emphasizing the power of rich experiential learning opportunities for students. In addition, he has his research interests in the area of heat transfer, energy storage, fluid mechanics and nanostructures, and his current interests include the 3D printing of cells and tissues with biological inks and the development of nanoparticle colloids for biosensing, chemical sensing, and supercapacity applications. He's a fellow of the Canadian Academy of Engineering and an appointed member of the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council of Canada. He's also uh, become a very good friend of mine. We've known each other for a number of years and he invited me kindly to join his uh, Dean's Advisory Board at McMaster University, which is a very eye-opening experience. Um, and I have the pleasure of meeting him at many conferences around the world and have done for a number of years. So welcome, Ishwa. So thank you, thankful you could join us. Thank you, Paul. I'm very glad to be here, particularly in your company. <laughs> well, thanks very much. We, we, we won't get into the normal dialogue that we, we have over a glass of wine, but I do want to start by asking you, Ishwa, you know, I always find that um, a lot of people don't fully understand or fully appreciate what engineering is all about. Um, and I was wondering, what, what, what were you thinking as a young man before you came into engineering? Um, and what did you expect from the engineering program when you got there? I didn't want to be an engineer. I wanted to write poetry. In fact, uh, uh, when I was an undergraduate, I had a book of poems in English uh, that was published. Uh, I wanted to study philosophy. I'd uh, uh, read on Kant and Hegel and uh, a number of other uh, scholars. Uh, but I grew up in the third world. I grew up in post-colonial India where there wasn't a safety net. And my mother, uh, thought that uh, being a poet and a philosopher was a surefire way to ensure starvation for the rest of my life. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, uh, she obviously hadn't done a mass balance because, you know, if you starve, you die. But she, so she said, you're going to starve for the rest of your life. Um, and, and my parents put a lot of pressure on me and they wanted me to get a professional degree. Um, and through a series of events, I wound up in an engineering program. And um, I wasn't particularly interested in engineering, but I did reasonably well. Um, and uh, when I did reasonably well, I became competitive uh, because I wanted to compete against myself and make sure that I kept getting the grades that I did. And, uh, through the engineering program uh, in mechanical engineering, I had the highest grades when I graduated. But I can't say that I really enjoyed it or learned or appreciated engineering. Did you understand what engineering meant at the time, do you think? Not really. Um, I think that I was um, very interested in solving puzzles. I always have been, you know, a crossword puzzle. Uh, right now, um, I'm learning French or using Duolingo. Uh, but for me, learning another language is like solving a puzzle, you know, because of the architecture of the language, the grammatical context, and so on. And so the underlying uh, basis of engineering, and it was very theoretical when it was taught to me, yeah. was essentially physics and chemistry and math. And so it was just solving these puzzles and 
bringing them together, which is why I think that I excelled at the assessments. But uh, to tell you the truth, I had no knowledge of applications because at that time, when I was being educated, experiential learning, problem-based learning, project-based learning, challenge-based learning, I mean, these were not widespread pedagogies and certainly not um, in the India that I grew up in, in the 1970s and the 1980s. I mean, the world has come a long way since then, as so, so has India. No, I was going to say we have a similarity. My, my father was born and raised in India. I was born in England. He, he left the country. And when I said to him that I was going to do engineering, he, he, he lost his mind. He, he wanted me to be an accountant, a lawyer, anything but an engineer. I think his impression was that I would spend the rest of my life under the hood of a car and I'd be fixing fixing cars or, or fixing refrigerators. <laughs> so, I mean, that's that that's one of the things I think that we need to change it in the world of, of, of promoting the, the, the need for engineering around the world. Oh, absolutely. And so after I finished engineering, I did a stint at uh, business school. I went to one of the most prestigious business schools in India, but I couldn't stand it. I dropped out after three months and instead uh, got on a plane and uh, went to the United States where I got a master's and PhD at the University of California at San Diego. And it was only at UC San Diego when I started doing research, solving puzzles meant coming up with solutions to either design an experiment, interpret an experiment, uh, develop some kind of an application that would make your experiment better. And that's when I started enjoying engineering. And I would say that, um, you know, I had a successful PhD stint and a postdoctoral stint and you, with the usual metrics. But it wasn't until I became a faculty member when I started um, doing research and teaching using experiential learning methods that I really, really understood the power and uh, the, the strength of engineering which is that you have the ability to take a very large problem, break it up into little bits, solve those little bits, and then integrate those little bits together. And sometimes they don't fit, and then you have to work your way towards a comprehensive solution. So, so, yeah. so, so engineering to me means essentially, you know, looking at small problems, coming up with solutions, and coming up with a grand solution to a grand challenge or a grand problem. What's what's what I what I find interesting is is the uh, your notion of turning everything into little puzzles. It explains every time that we talk to each other, you answer a question with a question, always challenging me to come up with a solution <laughs> to my own question, which I think is quite funny. But I think it actually it's 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 quite a nice lead-in to, to to what you're doing now at McMaster. And for for the reference for everybody listening to this, you know, um, when uh, Kwanzaa started introducing um, our virtual labs during the pandemic last year. The very first person that jumped onto the the idea was uh, Dr. Puri, sorry Ishwar, and 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 we spent probably the last nine months working very closely together to help you turn what was a very ambitious project in the first place, your pivot project, which is a, a, a monumental change to the first year experience for for, for new engineering students, uh, which had been in the works for a number of years, and then the pandemic hit. So maybe. Maybe you could touch base on some of those issues that you faced back in March or April of last year and the importance of the pivot program for engineers and how how you can reconcile that over the course of the summer and, and the fall. Uh, so Paul, with your permission, um, 
I'd like to go actually two years prior to March please, when the please. pandemic hit, uh, because this is a remarkable story about human-centered design thinking. Uh, the story starts, um, I would say, uh, in uh, 2018 when we had discussions and I brought a bus full of McMaster professors to Kwanzaa in, in Markham. And um, you did a show and tell, and we had a very uh, interesting discussion, which involved, um, I'd say about 30 odd people, maybe more, about how we could bring engineering to students in a hands-on, minds-on manner. And at that point, um, your colleagues and you uh, went back and did some brainstorming and based on your current projects or your current products at that time, uh, proposed some solutions to us. And we went back to the users, which were our faculty members who went back to our students who are really the users of the learning. And uh, they felt that some of those solutions were appropriate and others were not. And so there was a two-year back and forth, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And two-year back and forth uh, tells us and it informs us how to do things right. So you take the user, you design something, which your folks did, but it's an iterative process. You go back to the user. And um, before March, uh, we had, um, in somewhere in uh, 2019, we had already designed some solutions. and. By solutions, I mean project-based learning modules for students. So our uh, aspiration was that when first-year students came to McMaster uh, to study engineering, uh, they would typically uh, take four courses that were um, in four different subjects. But there was a very uh, influential paper about the spiral curriculum in 1960 by Bruner who said that uh, rather than breaking up subject matter, you bring different subject matter throughout the curriculum and you spiral it through the curriculum where students revisit it. And each time they revisit it, they tackle a problem of greater complexity. Mm -hmm. And so this encourages what is called sticky learning. The learning that I had in the 1970s and early 80s when I was an undergraduate was not sticky learning. It was perishable learning. You don't use it, you lose it. But now when you use those concepts, you use them. And um, as you know, uh, we, uh, we took those four courses and integrated them into one huge 13-unit course that spans two terms. And students learn through five projects, and Kwanzaa has contributed to almost all of them. Mm -hmm. and, and, and while working on those projects in teams, they not only develop technical competencies, but they develop 21st century competencies of creativity, design thinking, uh, integrating multiple disciplines, uh, solving problems. They work in multicultural design, uh, you know, and diverse teams. Uh, they understand that they have to prepare solutions. The solutions are innovations, but those innovations have to have a business basis. And they also understand that they have to take a large context. They have to be global citizens. Uh, so uh, one of the projects that they work on amongst the five 
is uh, building a recycling plant because of the emphasis on sustainability, but they build it for local issues uh, where you would have the recycling stream that we would find you know, in our neighborhoods in Canada or in America. So if you, if you think about the Kwanzaa solutions, they're not just solutions that uh, augment sticky learning, that uh, encourage hands-on, minds-on learning, but because they are projects, they also build these uh, 21st century competencies that uh, humans need because, uh, you know, technical work could be increasingly automated, but how we work with human beings cannot be automated. So I think, uh, Paul, without being verbose or grandiose about this, what we've done together is secured the futures of these McMaster students. We've secured their employability. We've secured their outcomes because not only are we giving them technical competencies, but we are giving them a platform. What we've built is a platform through which they learn how to interact with humans, solve human problems through design thinking. So Kwanzaa and McMaster Engineering pivoted through our relationship over two years. And what we are teaching students now is how they can themselves pivot, right? But before but they I, could pivot, we had to pivot what ourselves. I find, what I find really fascinating about this, this, this approach that you've taken, and you know, I've witnessed in the Dean's Advisory Boards, you know, presentations from your third and fourth year students doing capstone projects and your outreach programs where you've done amazing things with uh, the local community. And these are students who haven't gone through the pivot program. And I, I look at them and, and, and frankly speaking, compared to what I was like when I graduated and I was in the mid eighties, um, I could not have presented to a bunch of senior, you know, people in any way near as eloquently as they do. But I, but I see, you know, their diversity in the teams, their communication skills, their ability to kind of look at problems, try and assess it and pivot and change. And when I'm interviewing people for, for working at Quantzer in the engineering department specifically, um, it's very rare to see those. There is only a few places that we can draw upon that where the students have that capability. But you've done this in their very first year. This is, this is I, th I think the number is 11 or 1200 students are being put through this program in the first year. So that was a big change. How did you convince the faculty to, to go down this path? It wasn't easy uh, because um, when I first proposed uh, integrated learning and project-based learning, uh, there was a lot of skepticism from faculty and also from students because current students felt that future students would not be prepared in high school. But the reality is, is that project-based learning, uh, everyone is prepared for that. I mean, you know, if you give an erector set to a kid or um, if you give a child a bicycle, they're going to learn how to ride it, right? I mean, that's hands-on, minds-on learning. And, and, and so what we did was that we started a pilot program. There's a brand new program coming out at that time in collaboration with our um, uh, Dean of Health Sciences uh, on biomedical engineering. And the uh, biomedical engineering program, or iBiomed as we call it, um, we decided to have integrated learning and project-based learning in that. And what we found was that the outcomes were spectacular. Those students performed as well, if not better, and typically better than the students who were going through the regular engineering program. And not only that, based on their first-year projects, the first-year projects, 
mm-hmm. um, which should be a shot in the arm for Kwanzaa as well. Uh, based on their first year projects, there were many startups that came out. And um, I think, Paul, you met uh, some of the individuals who I presented. Have, I, have, I have, yeah. And I, and I remember vividly being sitting around the table, and, and the advisory board consists of primarily alumni from McMaster who've done well in business. And, and you know, you've got a wide range of, of people around the table. And, and you presented that. And I think it was John Preston, your associate dean for research. He presented the results from this uh, from this experiment or this pilot, and and demonstrated that the students were not only learning the technical uh, content, but they were building their capacity for teamwork and other professional skills, which which come out of that. And I think you asked the question with a little wry smile on your face to everyone around the rooms and, and saying, "Do you think we should pre- proceed with something?" Like this? Uh, you, what, what? 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 Can I have a vote, maybe? <laughs> and the whole the whole room just erupted in laughter, and everyone put their hands up and said, "Go ahead, Ish. Oh, you got our vote, right?" Um, and 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 you know now 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 you're doing it. How how how's it how's it going? Because this is your first first uh, full implementation for the for the first year students. You're into your second semester now. Um, you've done it virtually. Um, how, how's it been? Uh, uh, received by the students. So, um, very interesting story. So now we come to March of last year, and uh, we've all gone virtual. It looks like we'll be virtual for a while. Uh, so in March, we think we'll come back. The pandemic will die down, and by May, it's apparent it's not going to die down, and we might be going for a while. And that's where we uh, really started to work with uh, Kwanzer, and uh, the whole thought of digital twins went into overdrive. Uh, So part of it was prescient because um, uh, the teams that were considering the Kwanzaa projects had already, on both sides, already determined about a year ago, a year before March, that we would have, we would virtualize uh, these projects. And the reason was that now you have this massive course, if a student falls ill or they have a life event, do they really have to come back and repeat the entire course? Can't we have a module that they could do virtually or they could come back and do virtually? And so uh, that was very prescient. But the whole point now was that rather than thinking about it in a leisurely manner and saying, hey, let's virtualize, although we had the conceptualization, we had conceptualized virtualization, we had to go into overdrive. And you folks delivered. So we developed digital twins of all of the projects. And students are now working on those digital twins. Um, so last, uh, you ask how it's going. Uh, I'll give you an yeah, the feedback, I'm interested in the student feedback and, and, and also the faculty, because I think they've had to implement something quite unique. So this is the high point, right? From the student uh, perspective, uh, I'll give you an anecdote. Uh, so in uh, December, I did a round-the-world tour. But of course, the round-the-world tour nowadays is on a platform such yeah. as this. Uh, right. And I. Uh, uh, it was amazing how I could go through multiple time zones in the um, in in one day. Something that would have taken me about a week to do, right. to hop from place to place. Because we had not only domestic students, but we had international students all over the world, and it was a check-in with them. And along the way, I met this student Kwai from um, from Kenya, and Kwai told me that he was very disappointed that he couldn't come to McMaster. Because he was really, you know, he really wanted to come to McMaster. He was very disappointed he couldn't come to campus. He couldn't get that experience. And, and he said that he struggled actually with some of his courses. 
which were the lecture type courses. Mm -hmm. uh, the one uh, uh, in, in first year students do a lot of courses from outside of engineering, math, physics, and so on and so forth. And we are trying to do the best we can with them. But he said that the light in his day was really 1P13, this massive um, engineering course where we virtualized uh, uh, several projects. And he said he really enjoyed meeting his teammates because we cycle the students through different teams. And he said he really looked forward to it every day. He looked forward to working with them. He looked forward to the class. And there's been an overwhelming response that uh, students are very happy with the uh, 1P13, the, 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 the course with the digital twins, um, mm -hmm. in relation to the traditional learning that they're getting in other courses, other non-engineering courses. The faculty members are very pleased with that because obviously when you put an effort and you get um, good uh, uh, outcomes, people are very happy. So for the first time, I think we are in the middle of a pandemic and we did a student satisfaction survey with their learning and the results are off the charts. I love your vision of what's possible for the future. Maybe you'd like to share with everybody what your vision of a, you know, a portable yeah, so I, think, would look like. I think that with the, the digital solutions that we are talking about, uh, we've developed them in such a way that we've integrated the curriculum. Um, the next step, I think, would be to uh, deconstruct them and to develop them into separate modules, where the modules could be plug and play. So today, when students learn subjects, you know, so for instance, in a term, they learn five subjects, but they learn those subjects in silos. They'll go to one class, independent of the other. They'll go to the second class, the third class. The instructors don't really talk. They're learning independently. But with digital solutions, what we can do is we can interweave the subjects because after all, when students are taking five subjects, subject matter A has relevance to what is being taught in subject matter C. Mm -hmm. And so with project-based learning and some of these modules we're developing, we can integrate the curriculum not only horizontally, but also uh, not only horizontally, but also vertically through the years where you can get a little peep of what might be an application in year four when you're in year three and, and so on. Now, once you have modules, you can now start to restructure your learning entirely. Uh, right. You know, there are students who are degree seeking students, but there are also learners who may want to learn just, you know, one facet or another facet of a subject. And so once you have these modules, you can develop these modules into what are called micro-credentials. And interrelated modules can stack up, which means that when uh, learners are assessed on their learning, they get a micro-credential, which you can stack up, micro-credential one, two, three, four, five, six, and with five or six or seven or 10, however many, depending upon the size of your modules, you could get, then give learners a certificate. And that certificate tells an employer that they have a technical competency in something, but they also have skills like teamwork, leadership, communication, and, and at what level. And so you could develop a scale. Um, so I would say that we not only want to produce employable graduates, but we also want to have impact. To have impact, we need to have programs that are innovative, which mm -hmm. means that we also have to and this may seem self-serving, but it's not. 
also maintain the employability of our own employees so that they are relevant and you know they don't lose their jobs so you've got to have a model that brings in revenue that uh, allows you to innovate but also sustain the jobs of the employees that you have but that model of course is predicated on providing the best outcomes for students so it is altruism it is doing good by the world but we also have to make sure that the model is sustainable that you don't go with a tin cup or a handout to someone like a government or something you know when you're in charge of your own destiny and mm-hmm. you have revenue from these different sources whether it's micro credentials pre-engineering programs degree producing programs you can do whatever you want so do you do you do you see that the um the changes that are happening right now around the world are going to have a profound impact on the education community? Absolutely. Every single institution in the world, regardless of whether they had uh, you know, uh, substantial means or limited means, has made the pivot to um, virtual teaching and learning. Mm-hmm. So that's not going to go away. I mean, we've been talking about virtual teaching and learning ever since MOOCs and even before that. Right. Uh, you know, and before that, it used to happen with uh, uh, when I was an assistant professor, I used to tape uh, lectures on these VHS cassettes, which used to go out to learners. Right. And they would be off campus programs where they would borrow the tape and they'd plug it in and then they'd learn something. So uh, virtual learning has been happening for a long time. There were correspondence courses which people did by mail. Right. So what we've done is we've virtualized learning in a technological sense, and that technology is not going going away. Now, the value of a degree depends on how the employer values it. So if an employer values a degree, that degree is relevant, whether it's accredited or it's not accredited. You know, and and so think about it. There's an opportunity for for-profit organizations. All my life, I've worked in a not-for-profit because uh, you know, I believe that education is a public good. But imagine if for-profit organizations uh, started to use some of these virtual tools for teaching and learning. They weren't accredited. The quality control wasn't there, or the quality control only went to the market, and it was not as a result of experts. Uh, you know, there's a big scope for them to come in, particularly with micro-credentials. I mean, this is how uh, disruptive innovation takes place, right? Uh, if you look at Clayton Christensen's work, you know, right. the uh, the Toyota Corolla comes in, it's a low-end car, and then suddenly people buy it, Toyota makes it better and better, out comes the Camry, and bingo, now you have the Lexus. And so now Toyota is the car in demand, and you disrupt the other, you know, fat and happy automakers, right? Wow, so, the most, I mean, the most disruptive technology we've seen in our lifetime has been the iPhone. Or that's right. Similar. I mean, it's taken away multiple devices, which are now packaged in one piece that no one can live without. So, and I, and I see that happening in, in so many areas in the future. And that might happen in, in, in education now that we virtualize, that virtual education has been accepted. Uh, there are barriers to this. One of the barriers is that the student experience is lost. And so what bricks and mortars universities have to do is is double down on the student experience, understand what it means. And the second is that bricks and mortar universities, uh, you know, what my responsibility is to double down on the human. We 
make sure that our students interact with other humans and they understand that the best design, the best solution is a human-centered design solution. And I think that's one of the lessons of the pandemic. If we don't want to get disrupted. I mean, I think if we sit back and we are fat and happy and we are skeptical about, well, we haven't been disrupted before, I think we've got another thing coming after the pandemic. Well, you know, Ishwar, it's always the case. I mean, you know, we could we could spend another two hours sitting here and and you know, I for everyone listening here, I probably still owe Ishwar at least a dozen beers for the number of times that that, that you know either you bought me one or 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 you've done me a favor. But honestly, uh, Ishwar, thank you so much for spending the time. I know it's 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 um you're a very busy, very busy man and, and I've I've seen the impact that you've had on McMaster University firsthand and the impact you've had with us because not only did you listen to the vision see you acted immediately and now we are involved in, in a number of programs probably 13 or 14 courses within McMaster so thanks for taking the time uh, to, to, to be with me my pleasure Paul and uh, no need to thank me I'm a big fan you folks are doing great work thank you for uh, having me thank you very much indeed we'll see you soon way to go laddies <laughs> bye now <laughs>